0: now uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, it makes you think, like, what is the appropriate response of the church? And, you know, some things that come to mind are like prayer, obviously, uh, giving, um, advocating for uh, refugees who are fleeing the country. But ultimately, the hope that we want to extend as a people, as a church, as Christians uh, in this time is we want to direct all people to the compassionate gracious love of Jesus Christ like we want people to know Jesus and um you know I was just looking into this fact and how historically the church has responded and I stumbled across uh C.S. Lewis who many of you guys know as the author of the nine year books during World War II um he took this really literally so he went around uh, and he visited soldiers to share about Jesus to share about Christianity um, and as he did that he kept coming into this kind of roadblock uh, but it just only made him more motivated and this roadblock was people would tell him look I can I can accept that Jesus is like a good moral teacher like he's he's a good moral person he lives out good values um, he's got some good teachings um, I can learn some things from him but like that's about as far as I'm willing to go I'm not sure that he's someone I'll You know, bank my whole life upon. And that kind of response, like that logic, was frustrating to Lewis because when he read the Gospels, like that was not an option. See, when Cicero read the Gospels, like he could see that, yes, Jesus was a good teacher. Like he had some great teachings, um, some great bangers. Uh, (laughs) He was uh, a morally good person, right? he was also really disruptive. He was against the grain. He disagreed with uh, many traditions, and most importantly, he claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He claimed that, you know, he knew what was universally right and wrong. So, when C.S. Lewis saw this Jesus in the Gospels, he, he was like, that's, it's not an option to just say that oh Jesus is a good te- like he's a great teacher or he's like a great moral inspiration. And so he came up uh, with what we now call the trilemma of Jesus, right the trilemma so different to dilemma, tri three. Um, and this just means when we honestly face who Jesus is, we only have three like one of three options. Uh, number one, he's a liar. so that means he's a con man. Like he did some... Real flashy things, some uh, miraculous tricks, and he won people over that way. He's a liar, first of all. Second of all, he's a lunatic. So he was like literally, legitimately crazy. Um, even if he believed everything that he was saying, he was completely deluded. So you know, if you think of people in mensil, uh, mental mental in institutions who might think that they're like Napoleon or the president of the United States. Um, that kind of thing, right? He's a lunatic. Well, finally, um, everything that he said was true. He really is the Son of God in the flesh. He really does have the authority to forgive sins. That means he's Lord, and he's worthy of all of our obedience and our, our worship. So he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Uh, the point is you can't take a neutral position on Jesus when you actually read the Gospels, when you actually see him as we see him in the Gospels. So over the course of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus has been going going around, he's been healing people. Um, he's declared that you know he's got the authority to forgive sin. Um, last week, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, looked at how he turned that ancient tradition of Sabbath on its head and he renewed it from a day of legalism, where you, ha- you know, come and you fulfill the law, uh, do the sacrifices, um, you know, walk a certain number of steps a day, to a day of mercy, to a day of healing, a day of deep rest. And In our passage today, we see that Jesus uh, is not just the Lord of the Sabbath, he's not just uh, the Son of God, he's not just a teacher, he's not just... a, a morally good person, but we see Jesus uh, the exorcist. Right, the exorcist. If you've seen uh, the movie, um, it's exactly what... Uh, don't have to watch it. It's a bit freaky. Uh, it's exactly what it is. Uh, Jesus the exorcist. Someone who has power and authority um, over the invisible, uh, evil, spiritual beings uh, that actually exist in our world. And it's um, going to force people as they come face to face with this Jesus, the exorcist, to make a real choice about Him, right—that He's either a liar, a lunatic, or His Lord—and as we come face to face with this Jesus today, um, it's going to challenge our view of Jesus as well, because if we look at our lives and, right, with our lips, you know, we talk and we say that Jesus is Lord, but really, functionally, practically, uh, you know, we flick through our Bibles or we only get in prayer. Um, when we just need some direction, we just need some wisdom for our lives, um, then he's really just a good teacher. Or if we look at our lives and we say that Jesus is Lord, but functionally we, you know, we just treat Jesus as an inspirational role model, as someone who we'd love to you know, be more like, but there's no real change. There's no real deeper transformation in our character, in the way that we live. then he's just, a great moral, respectable figure that we look up to. Uh, I think the point is we can go through life saying that Jesus is Lord uh, without Him ever actually being Lord. And if He's not Lord, um, then, you know, why? why are we here? What are we doing? I think that's sobering for all of us. Uh, you know, in times like this, um, especially times like this, where there are many things that are going on in our world, and you know, people are—they're observing how we how we respond. Um, people need to know that Jesus is not just a teacher to us; Jesus is not just an in, in inspiration to us. It, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Like He's, ref- He's our refuge, who we bank our whole life on. And this passage is going to get. to come face to face with the real jesus and my hope is today that we'll be challenged that we'll be humbled that some of us will even be rebuked um, as we see that jesus is the son of god in the flesh that he's lord and that nothing else will do and nothing else will do and if he's lord he's worthy of our full obedience and our worship and when we know that jesus is lord our lives will be transformed Our lives will actually be radically transformed because he's a good and a gentle king. And he wants to teach us how to live a life of fullness, a life of flourishing, a life of rest. Having said that, I want to look at three things in this passage about the lordship of Jesus. Number one, Jesus' lordship is supremely and ultimately powerful. Number two, uh, Jesus' lordship demands a response. And number three, Jesus' lordship forgives, but also transforms. So first, uh, Jesus' lordship is supremely and ultimately powerful. So verse 22 talks about, um, Then a demon-oppressed pre- man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So we see here that Jesus is an exorcist, right? Um, so if you have seen that 1973 horror film, Maybe that is what comes to mind, but I I don't think we should think too far f- like away from that. The, the, the reality of it is, it's it's gruesome stuff. It's a demon possessing a human being. Uh, it doesn't give us all the details here, but you know I'm sure there was some frothing at the mouth. I'm sure there was some involuntary movements. I'm sure uh, it was just horrific to see. But yeah, we see here Jesus has the power to control, to manipulate, to have authority and cast out invisible, evil spiritual beings. And I think for most of us here, we're not thinking about spiritual beings like every day <laughs> on a daily basis. Because we live in a pretty modern, like scientific world. And if anything, we're thinking more about science. We're thinking more about um, the latest developments in medicine, like you know, vaccines or not, or, or tech but in many parts of the world today and throughout, actually, all of the ancient world, people knew, like they just knew that there is an invisible spiritual realm. Uh, and it's full of spiritual beings that the Bible calls angels and demons. And just because you and I, uh, we're not used to thinking about these things or we've just stopped thinking about these things, it doesn't mean it's not real. It's like um, a tribal native uh, in you know, a remote part of Papua New Guinea, They might not understand or believe that the internet exists, right? But it does, whether they understand it or not. And in the same way, um, as a church, I know we've had some uh, positive and also some negative experiences in this area. And I think uh, for a lot of us, I I know for myself at least, it's inclined me to to not really think much about the spiritual realm. uh, To not really want to understand it anymore. But it still exists. It was real back then, and it's still real now. You know, one of the things that I think about is um, how awesome it would be to decorate our space, our sanctuary, with some banners. um, And if you have grown up in the church at all, you would have seen some banners, you know, stuff that says, like, Jesus, the Savior, right? Friend, comforter, refuge. But um, I doubt any of us would expect to see one that says, exorcist, right? Jesus the exorcist. But the Gospels are clear, like this is who he is. Demons are real. They do oppress and afflict, and even at at times, they possess people. That's what the Bible says. And one of the many compassionate and authoritative things that Jesus did, and still does today, is he delivers people. He delivers people from demonic oppression and activity. He rescues them. By just one touch from Jesus and this demon oppressed man is completely set free. Completely delivered. And that's what it looks like when Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth. That's what it looks like when the Lord of the universe steps into our world and just with one touch turns everything on its head yes we live in a world that's material uh, but it's also a spiritual realm and in this spiritual realm that we're all a part of we come face to face with the lord he's the power of god and it demands a response it's not just something that we can just sit back and be like okay that's pretty cool demands a response, which is my second point. Jesus' Lordship demands a response. And in this passage, we see two responses. Um, I want us to learn from them. Um, and after these, ex- uh, these responses, Jesus says in verse 30, like he just reiterates this point. He says, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather uh, with me scatters. There's no such thing as a you know, one foot in, one foot out response to Jesus. It's all or nothing. Can't be neutral. He's either Lord or he's a fraud. And I want to show you how this plays out in these two responses. So, the first response is discomfort. Discomfort. I don't think any of us like to feel discomfort or feel uncomfortable, but it happens. Uh, Verse 23 says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So, I want you to hear here. There's an openness, right? There's an openness. It's not completely closed off. These are the crowds, but there's also... Uh, bit of an uncertainty, uh, they're impressed and they're amazed by um, seeing Jesus see exorcist, seeing the Lord of creation, the Lord of the spiritual world, the Lord of all things, cast out this demon with a touch. But the question they're ultimately asking is, but is he or not? Is he or not? Is he the son of David or not? Is he the Messiah or not? I want you to think about your favorite film of all time. um, I think for me, Lord of the Rings has to be up there. Maybe not for you, that's okay. uh, But imagine going to the cinema, or imagine me going to the cinema, because you might not go to the cinema to watch Lord of the Rings. uh, For the first time, to watch Lord of the Rings, and before you get to the climactic moment, right? At the very end, um, where they're about to, spoiler alert, it's a 100-year-old book, uh, they're about to destroy the ring um, and defeat the big bad guy, Sauron. And imagine the movie just fizzles out in that moment. And you're told, sorry, we can't show you the rest of the movie. um, That's it, right? You do whatever you can. Or I do whatever I can. Just insert your favorite movie. I do whatever I can to get out of there, to get to know what happens, to answer this big unanswered question. It's incomplete. And for the people uh, in, in this day, they see Jesus. He's exercising demons in front of them. He's demonstrating this power that they've never seen before, and his lordship over all creation, and, and, and the, the question, can this be the son of David? It's too big a question to leave unanswered. Because if he is the son of David, um, he's from the line of the greatest king that they've ever had in their history. means he's the Messiah. means he's Lord, and you have to come to him. Down before Him and worship Him, and He's come to radically transform their lives. I think many of us have, um, we've, we've definitely had moments where we feel uncomfortable or some discomfort when we come face to face with the real Jesus, and we have lingering doubts about who Jesus is. And um, you know, the question is the same: like, is He or not? Is He really? The saviour or not? Is he really the deliverer or not? Is he really Lord or not? And we let them linger, those questions, and it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't change us. Just makes us stagnate. And we might do all the right things. Might come to church and read the Bible. But we, we live as if Jesus isn't Lord at all. And I wanna ask you, what good is it to stay in that discomfort? Go and meet Jesus. Go and meet this Jesus, other Gospels. Do whatever you can. Like Run out of the cinema. Just find some way to have that question answered. It's so important. It's too important for you to ignore. Is Jesus Lord? And don't live like it doesn't matter. Don't live like you could just live as if that question won't really ever be answered. Second response is to deny and to deflect. And we see that in the Pharisees in verse 25, where they see Jesus demonstrating his power over the, sp- over the spiritual realm, and they say, um, it, it is only by and uh, That's a nickname that the Jews used to use for Satan. Um, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So The Pharisees are right there with the crowds, um, and they're at a point where maybe at the start of Jesus' ministry, they were like, they heard about what he was doing and they were like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe it. It's just exaggeration. But now they're at a point where they're seeing him literally in front of their eyes exercising a demon from a man and they can't deny it anymore, right? Uh, they can't deny that he has supernatural authority, that he has power. And so instead, they deny that he's the Messiah. And they attribute that power to Satan. And like I want you to know that that actually makes no sense because Jesus he kind of points out to them in verse 25. Um, he uses this metaphor about a kingdom divided divided against itself. Um, and every time I read this passage, it reminds me of, an, of a moment in my life which I share. But this is what he says. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand, and as Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? It's so talking about a divided kingdom, like a kingdom which there's infighting, uh, with opposition uh, within that kingdom, and it ultimately just falls, right? Whenever I come across this passage, I'm reminded of my first ever rugby game that I played when I was eight. I uh, didn't really know how it worked. I had the ball passed to me. I closed my eyes, and I just ran in a circle all the way back to... M- our own try line and I put that ball down, I turned around victoriously, and I was like, yeah, and my whole team was just standing there, like, mouth open, looking at me, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, I scored against my own team, which is what I'm trying to say, Uh, and it's like that. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, how can I be casting out demons with the power of Satan? With the power of the prince of demons, that's that's, that's an own goal. That's an own try. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, but I made it a thing. Um, it's destructive. It's self-destructive to Satan. Right, and to make the ridiculousness of what um, Pharisees, the Pharisees are saying even clearer, Jesus uses this one more illustration in verse 29. talks about a strong man coming into the house of uh, sorry. Talks about someone coming into the house of a strong man. So, think about the strongest guy you know, right? The most muscular guy you know. Um, so, this person comes to, into the house of the strong man and he binds the strong man and takes all this stuff. And the, the, the idea is that in order to be able to do that, um, you have to be stronger than that strong man, right? And Jesus is saying, like, I'm that guy. Like, Satan yeah, has some influence can see that. He's got some power, but but I'm stronger than him. And when I come here into his house, I'll bind him, and I'll plunder that house, and I'll take back everything that is stolen from God's people. So you see why the Pharisees' accusation, it makes no sense at all. So why do they respond in this way? Why are they, like, why are they denying what is so clear front of their eyes and here's why it's because this jesus this lord this messiah doesn't fit uh, with how they see the world so he doesn't fit with their understanding or their desire for, for the messiah to come and elevate the pharisees like that these guys are pretty comfortable they're in positions of high social standing and they're waiting for a messiah to come and elevate them even higher high positions of social standing, and ultimately deliver them from Rome, right? And he's not doing that. He's here and he's hanging out with tax collectors. He's hanging out with, like, the dredges of society. He's, ha- he's eating with sinners and prostitutes. He's just hanging out with the sick and the needy. And it's just like it's too much for them. It's offensive to them. It doesn't fit with what they want. It's too con- it's too confronting for them because if, like, if they were to receive this person as Lord, then that means that they'd have to do what he's doing. Right, they have to give up their comforts. They have to go hang out with the sick and with the needy and with the vulnerable and show compassion. It's too disruptive to their way of life. So instead, they deny that Jesus is Savior and they say that Jesus is satanic. About the mental gymnastics that has to happen for someone to get there, but I think it does happen. Um, you know, maybe not quite for us to get to the point where we say Jesus is satanic, but I think for uh, many of us, like we, we don't deny that Jesus is powerful. For many of us, like we, we've seen his power, we've seen his power firsthand, uh, we've been amazed by the lordship and the power of Jesus. But to really accept this Jesus as Lord, it means that it's going to disrupt our lives. Um, And maybe we don't want that. To really accept this Jesus as Lord means it's going to confront our understanding of what the good life is. And maybe we don't want that. And wanting to guard some semblance of the good life that we want will deny and deflect, um, even if it's illogical, even if it's irrational. And yeah, we won't go so far as to say that Jesus is satanic, but we might convince ourselves that Jesus is uncaring. Jesus is powerless or He's distant. He's callous. He's not strong enough to deal with the sins and the problems and He's not caring enough to hear me when I cry out to Him. That's who the Jesus is that we can make up in our minds. But that really just doesn't Compute with this Jesus who we see in the Gospels. So you know, that's a real tension that we have. What do we do? Right? And this leads me to my final point: uh, Jesus' lordship. Uh, it transforms us. Right? It transforms us. Uh, so we see that His lordship is powerful, demands a response, but finally we see that. Jesus' Lordship, it transforms us. Uh, We're going to see that. Before we do, verse 31, um, this passage is a really difficult passage. It's a passage that a lot of preachers like to not go to, and they avoid preaching. Um, But we're not going to do that because we're just going through this whole gospel. This is what it says. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But uh, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, in either in this age or in the age to come. Um, so there's good news here, right? And the good news is that every sin, every blasphemy, uh, which means to speak against someone, like, will be forgiven all of your sins. But there's also really bad news or really scary news here, um and it's that blasphemy against the holy spirit is unforgivable so it introduces this idea that in the bible or in jesus teachings that there's an unforgivable sin and you're like what i thought like everything like everything like our deepest worst sins could be forgiven in christ so you know this is a challenging passage um it's been misinterpreted so badly before in church history that it's caused some brothers in the faith from centuries before to, um, to hang themselves because they thought that they committed this sin. Um, it's been misinterpreted badly before. So I want to tell you first what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not, before I tell you what it is. It's not, if you say the words, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because then I would be screwed right now. <laughs> uh, like it's not that it's not you, know, you done did it. That's it. You can't be forgiven. It's not when you hear a friend say oh, you, know, you know how I talk to a friend and sometimes I'll share about how um, they think that they did something out of the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're like hmm, I, don't, I don't know about that. You might question it, but n- then you think of this verse and you're like Oh no, did I? Am I blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Um, no, you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible te- tells us to test the spirits, right? To, to, to be discerning and to go, is that really the Holy Spirit? Is that really Him? That's okay. It's not when you feel the Holy Spirit, you know, prompting you to talk to that homeless person on the street and you kind of block it out and you just walk uh, forward and go about your day. That you know, It's not quenching the Spirit. Uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's not just unbelief, it's not just rebellion, but it's A final denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's when you've put yourself in such opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and his ministry, right? You read about these miracles and the greatest miracle of all, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and then to regenerate dead sinners like us. When you've denied that finally, um, Really, you're just painting him out to be no different than any other fad, any other spirit, and like n- even no different from Satan. And at that point, the very spirit that draws you to salvation through repentance has been cut off. Right? That avenue's been cut off. The avenue to forgiveness through repentance is just is closed. And, you know, w- when I read this passage, it makes me think about... Um, a man called Christopher Hitchens, was uh, a prominent atheist. Um, he died about five years ago, and I used to listen to him um, because he'd have these debates with like other prominent Christian theologians and scholars. and They were really like robust, interesting debates. He had some good points, um, and I like I even saw him debating against his own brother because his brother was a Christian, um, and it was a point of huge contention for them and the rest of their relationship. Um, and then when he passed away, I came across this article that said um, he received Christ on his deathbed and I was amazed because I, like everything I'd seen over time was like that's not like how is that possible? Um, he's persistent, he's hardened rejection um, he didn't reject the historical Jesus like he didn't re- he, re- he didn't reject the person of Jesus, but he did reject the work of the Holy Spirit. and so a few days later, Another article clarified that he did not receive Christ on his deathbed. His son, actually, was very vehement um, in denying that. And it turned out he went all the way to his dying breath, just denying and saying no. No to Jesus. No to Jesus as anything more than a, sto- a historical figure. So, you know, I, th- I think Christopher Hitchens, he was full well willing to acknowledge that he was a good teacher. He's a good guy. But the Son of God? (laughs) No. Lord? No way. And it's just, it's so terrifying that even on your deathbed, which you have literally nothing left to gain, that there's no willingness, that there's no openness to to budge. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And the point is the unforgivable sin. It's not primarily a sin of the heart. uh, Sorry, it's not primarily a sin of the lips. It's a sin of the heart. It's not about saying something wrong. It's about a heart Posture, a heart hardening, and that's what Jesus builds on in these final verses, verses thirty-three to thirty-seven. He's talking about um, a tree. That's what he says. And a tree and its fruit. Uh, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So Jesus makes clear here the principle, the truth that we see all over Scripture. Our words reveal our hearts. right? Our words reveal our hearts. And what's at the core of the unforgivable sin... It's not about what's spoken, but it's what lies beneath. What lies underneath what's said. Like our words reveal our hearts. And we might be able to change our behavior, but the reality of just being a human being is that we can't change our hearts. Right? Our hearts are predisposed to uh, turning away from the one who made our hearts becoming hardened and callous and uncaring towards God. But to know the Lordship of Jesus means that you're not only forgiven of your sins, but your heart is transformed. Not only made clean and justified before a holy God, but your heart is transformed. Your heart is made new. Your heart is softened. And suddenly you can feel again can see colors again everything makes sense in light of the Lord of the universe you know, that heart that is so hard for many of us to, n- to take away from self-centered tendencies from that narrowness becomes broad it becomes soft it becomes others centered that heart as much as we try to just like bang into shape, be better, like just be more patient, be more loving. We come into the Lordship of Christ and it's just undone. It's just completely, radically made new. But Jesus is Lord and we know that. Uh, it's transformative for us. And so What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, here's the first thing. When we come face to face with the Lord Jesus like we did today, like it means that we can no longer live as if he's, I don't know, a good teacher or a moral person, a moral inspiration that we can look up to. We come face to face with Jesus the sobering reality is that he's Lord or he's not. And instead of looking at your life and seeing how hard it is for you to live as if he's Lord, instead of looking at your life and seeing how hard it's been for you to change those tendencies that you've been wanting to change in your heart, but the invitation here today is that if you come to him, like you'll be forgiven of every sin, right? I think in this passage, like that unforgivable sin, it takes up so much of our headspace, so much of our, um, like just our attention uh, that we don't read uh, verse 32, uh, verse 31, sorry. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Like even blasphemy against the Son of Man, it makes me think about, go through the Bible and just look at how Peter, blasphemes against Jesus. He denies Jesus three times. Betrays him and rejects him after walking with him and living with him for years. Think about Paul who refers to himself as a blasphemer. Like the reality is that every sin, the sins that, you know, you have been struggling with for ages or you just don't even want to think about anymore. The sins that you just 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 doesn't compute every sin can be forgiven no sin can out sin the cross of Christ when he says it is finished that's exactly what it means all of your sins forgiven paid for purchased and so we come to this Lord like, I, I do want us to be really challenged. Like, is he Lord? And if he's not, then I think it's going to involve some hard questions, some soul-searching. Because it's, this is not, like, I can tell you this much, if, if Jesus is not Lord, then the life that you are living, that's not the life that he wants you to live. That's not the life that he purchased for you. And so, I think we have to be confronted with some tough questions. Um, And my plea would be to do that, to actually take the time to do that, to not keep living in this limbo, just a discomfort. Do whatever you can. Like, search him out. Is he Lord? Have that question answered and then come and experience his Lordship. It might not look like, what you think or what you want. It might clash up against your life and what you think is a good life. But Jesus says things to us like, whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. You know, the Christian life, it doesn't make sense, but it is a life ultimately when it comes into the lordship of the king, this gentle king. It's a life... Of fullness. It's a life of flourishing. It's a life of rest. And I don't want I'm to, not, I'm not here to try to convince you of that. I'm asking you to go and experience it for yourself. When Jesus is Lord, like, we become transformed, truly. And so if there are areas in our lives where we know, like, we're just sitting in that discomfort, or areas of our lives where we're in blatant rebellion, like, I want to ask that you don't stay there. It's uncomfortable. It's not right. That's not the life that Jesus died to purchase for you. Come and know him as Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, even that starting off the prayer like that uh, makes me realize how often that um, that term, that phrase, that title uh, can just become very empty on our lips. Um, and we come face to face with you uh, like we did today. We're soberly reminded that we can't live like that. You're either Lord or you're not. And for those of us who are confronted, who are uncomfortable, who are challenged or rebuked, Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of that, Lord, your still small voice, your gentle voice, will call by name to come and know you as Lord, to come and know your forgiveness of all sins, all of their sins, all of my sins come and know the transformation of the heart that we do want, but we try to achieve through other means, Lord, teach us and beckon us to come to you, you're gracious and you're merciful, to come to you and to know you as Lord, nothing else will do, we don't want to live like a are not, we don't want to live one foot in, one foot out. Even if it's painful, even if it's challenging, even if it's time-consuming, Lord, help us to figure it out. Help us to answer that question so that we would be a people who know you as Lord, King, Savior, God. Jesus, let me pray.